0: Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in Science Fiction and Politics. All right, we're talking again about Robert Charles Wilson's book, Blind Lake. And I'm going to read a passage, page 42, and this is near the end of chapter 4. And this is where the reporters, the journalists, are talking among themselves and Elaine is talking with Chris and Chris Carmody. And let's hear what they have to say, and let's see what we can get out of this passage that talks about some of the politics of the day. Well, all I want to say it's a good book. Now she's talking about Chris Carmody's book that got him into a whole peck of a lot of trouble. You, Chris Carmody, wrote a good book. You did the leg the legwork and you drew the necessary conclusions. Now you want to blame yourself for not flinching, Elaine. You want to flush your career away, pretending to work and not working, and blowing deadlines and screwing waitresses and with big tits and drinking yourself to sleep because you can totally do that. You wouldn't be the first. Not by a country mile. A country mile. Self pity is such an absorbing hobby. A man died, Elaine. Well, you didn't kill him. That's debatable. No, Chris, it's not debatable. Galliano went over the hill, either accidentally or as a willed act of self-destruction. Maybe he regretted his sins, and maybe not. But they were his sins, not yours. But I exposed him to ridicule. You exposed work that was dangerously shoddy and self-serving, and a threat to innocent people. It happens to be Galliano's work, and Galliano happened to drive his motorcycle into the Managahari River. But that's his choice, not yours. You wrote a good book. Jesus, Elaine, how badly does the world need one more blankety-blank good book? And a true book! and you wrote it out of a sense of indignity that was not misplaced. I I appreciate you saying this, but... And the thing is, you obviously got nothing useful from Crossbank. And what worries me is that you'll get nothing here, and blame yourself for it. And you'll blow off the deadline in order to conduct more efficiently this project of self-punishment you've embarked on. And that's so goddamn unprofessional. I mean, Vogel is a crackpot, but at least he'll produce copy. For a moment, Chris entertained the idea of getting up and walking out of the restaurant. He could go back to the gym and interview some of these stranded day workers. They would talk to him, at least. All he was getting from Elaine was more guilt, and he'd had enough, thank you. The salmon arrived, congealing its drizzled butter. What you have to do, she paused. The waiter dangled an enormous wood peppermill over the table. Take that away, thank you. The waiter fled. What you have to do, Chris, is stop acting like you have something to be ashamed of. The book you wrote, use it. If someone's hostile about it, confront them. If they're afraid of you because of it, use their fear. If you're stonewalled, you can at least write the story of how you were stonewalled, and how it felt to walk around Blind Lake as a pariah. But don't blow this opportunity. She leaned forward, her sleeves dangling perilously close to the butter sauce, because the thing is, Chris, this is Blind Lake. Maybe the great unwashed public has only a vague notion of what goes on here, but we know better, right? This is where all the textbooks get rewritten. This is where the human species begins to define its place in the universe. This is the fulcrum of who we are and what we'll become. You sound like a brochure. And she drew back, Why, you think I'm too wrinkled and cynical to recognize something genuinely awesome when I see it? I didn't mean that. I, uh, for what it's worth, you caught me in a moment of sincerity. And Chris said, Elaine, I'm just not in the mood for a lecture. Then Elaine said, well, I didn't really think you were in the mood for it. Okay, Chris, do what you think is best. She waved at his plate, eat the poor salted fish. A tent, he said, the Gobi Plateau. Well, sort of a tent, Elaine said. An inflatable habitat, airdrop from Beijing, rechargeable fuel cells, heat at night, all the satellite channels. Just like Roy Chapman Andrews? Hey, she said, I'm a journalist not a martyr. Okay, now, (coughs) this book is about the discovery of extraterrestrial life, and the ability to passively observe that without the extraterrestrial life looking back. And then the problems, what happens is when they found out that this opened up a can of worms, and they could look back, and something else happened as well. What's this passage talking about? What's going on with this passage? What's the significance of this passage? Why did I pick this passage? Read my mind. Why did I pick this passage? What's interesting about this passage that relates to us? When we look at the relevance of this science fiction book.
1: People don't want to To hear the truth. What's that? People don't want to hear the truth.
0: All right people have difficulty hearing the truth. What else? What about that?
1: Well, um, the reason Chris is having a hard time getting, like, writing and getting back into, like, being a journalist again is because he wrote a book that, like, exposed um, some truth that the public was not, like, it didn't sit well with the public, and so he, like, and it happens a lot, you know, we don't necessarily want to hear the whole truth, so it just doesn't get published.
0: Hmm. So, is that the public doesn't want to hear the whole truth? Or that Chris Carmody doesn't want to confront the truth?
1: The public doesn't want to hear it.
0: What's the relation to Chris Carmody then?
1: Well, he, because he wrote this, the book that... Um, he
0: wrote a book which was a tell-all book which right. revealed some corruption that was going on and the guy who was a focus about it committed suicide.
1: Because people didn't really want to know the truth about it. Um, he's
0: and a big scandal erupted bullying. and they blame, a lot of people blamed him for right. this guy killing himself.
1: So, like, people just don't necessarily want to hear um, what's really going on. And a lot of times it's the person who exposes it that gets blamed rather than the people that are really involved.
0: Yeah, it's to blame the blame the messenger type of syndrome. Go ahead. <clears throat> uh,
2: it's kind of a passage that's scrutinizing Chris for not having the guts to deal with the public because he did something revolutionary and awesome and he's not defending himself. He's kind of silken into the corner.
0: It's interesting. You're interesting a raised point. The the, the author, Chris, did something awesome, wrote a a book that was a tell-all book that was... It was true, nothing wrong with the book, but caused a reaction because the book was about somebody who was doing some things wrong, but they ended up committing suicide, and then Chris, the author of the book, got blamed, which... It's a weird thing, because Chris didn't kill the guy, the guy killed himself, but the issue is he, to Chris, got blamed for it. This happens all the time, whereas somebody does something to say some comment, and then somebody else reacts to that, and then the person who said the comment gets blamed for the person doing whatever they did. Now... The interesting thing that we're seeing here is that it affected Chris. What does that tell you about what his emotional state was when he did the thing in the first place? Was he expecting? What was he expecting?
2: He was expecting to just kind of publish his book and get a pat on the back and be done
0: with it. Publish the book and be done with it. He wasn't expected that there would be a reaction like a suicide and then that the public would then turn on him. That tells you something. There's two things going on. People learn to this school of hard knocks that actions that they do by telling information can cause responses in the masses that are unexpected. And that those responses can bash back at them. And they also learn that if they stick their neck out and do anything that's virtuous, they may get attacked. So they learn that doing something useful may cause a response and that that response may bounce back at them and hit them. So here we have a situation in which the deliverer of news is being educated to not deliver the news. That the deliverer of news is going through an education process to not deliver the news. The response from the public. There's also a response from other things. But someone else had their hand raised. Tyler, was it you?
3: Yeah, I was just going to say that um, there's certain people that are considered kind of untouchable. They're like public heroes. And when someone exposes something less than complimentary about them, there's a great social pressure to kind of cover that up. We don't want to hear it because. It That's interferes with our view of
0: this person as a hero. That's a really important point. That some people have a persona. And that that persona is one of, don't touch me, I'm untouchable. And that when people actually criticize that person, or a group of people, then they get walled badly. Not the person you're criticizing, but the people who are doing the criticism. What's the big... The big example of something like that dealing with religion over recent years? Catholics. Did it have
2: something to do with the Pope?
0: No, it had nothing to do with the Pope. Well, eventually it did, but nothing. He acted Um, to correct some stuff. Go ahead. Yeah,
2: it was, wasn't it? he failed to uh, discipline um, Catholic priests. Yeah, but
0: let's go to the first part. What about the the Catholic <laughs> priests?
2: Oh, well, they were accused of uh, molestation.
0: Yeah, there was a huge quantity of uh, pedophiles in the priesthood. And the Catholic priests were guilty of molesting children. Not all Catholic priests, but uh, a significant portion. They acted as a as a as a as, as a job venue that would protect them, and so pederasts used to end up and going into the priesthood, and then Catholicism, after a very great level of angst, had to face that and deal with hundreds and hundreds of abuses, and those abuses went on and on and on. And what happened when people went and complained to their bishops about? These priests and the Monsignors and other people that should have taken the responsibility, at very best, they would move the priest (laughs) to another parish. Uh, And then, but you know, they weren't firing the people, they weren't taking away their health care benefits, they weren't doing anything to get rid of them. In fact, there are still priests that are still in the Catholic Church that are getting health care benefits that are you know, moved into another location, uh, gone into a monastery or something like that. They, the issue is that it was such a, a, a situation where you, if you criticized a the priest, then it was, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And the enormous burden was on the person who was doing the criticism. Not the priest who was doing the molestation. And it took decades and decades and decades for that to be resolved. Now, this isn't something that just dealt with the priests. (coughs) Britain has had a problem that has been discovered recently that has gone back a very, very long time. Britain likes boarding schools. Don't ask me why they like boarding schools, but they like taking their kids and shuffling them off the boarding schools. Well, it turns out that over the many, 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 many decades, the boarding schools were places that attracted pederasts, pedophiles, people that would like molesting children, and what they would do is they'd have these tons of boys, and apparently similar abuses went on in, in girls' schools, but they would have these abuse of boys, that have tons of boys, and we have stories coming out of those schools that were just unbelievable. Homosexual rape was just absolutely rampant, and there's nothing that the boys could do about it, they were victims. And then they'd have situations, I've read horror stories, where where the boys would be woken up in mass at two or three in the morning and brought down to have naked showers while all the teachers would watch. Teachers in plural. A bunch of them would watch, you know, going through some type of ritual. Just awful situations. Complaints never addressed. And they would grow up. And they would send their sons or daughters to those same schools, back to those same schools. (coughs) Again, it was something you couldn't attack because of the the aura, the institution, the how dare you type of a situation. Now, let's say you're a reporter and you're faced with a situation where picking out what happened to the Catholic Church and to British boarding schools, but it's a common problem. People have relatives that are guilty of sexual molestation of of younger children in their own family hard to criticize those. Do you want to really send your relative to prison? Things like that. And does everyone want to believe that uncle so-and-so did such a thing? Do you get the idea? <clears throat> so it's a common problem. Now let's bring it to politics. You're a reporter. You want to report on something that's really gone wacky. What happens if you just sort of tell the truth? The whole truth, nothing but the truth. Be fired. Yeah, you'll be fired. There's a good chance you'll have real problems. And in those cases where you do tell the truth, you often have to back away from the truth because of the possible reaction that it could cause. Now, I don't need you to see this. I can actually show it, I can actually read this to you. I want to read you an opinion column by. David Brooks, of a few days ago. He has a new one in today, <coughs> but I want to read one that came out on the printed version of the New York Times. It came out on November 11th. It was on, online in November... I'm sorry, the printed version it came out November 12th. It was online and um, on the 11th of November. So it's called the National Greatness Agenda, and it was done this year, of course, 2010, November... And I want you to listen to this thing. Listen to what David Brooks is talking about. Elections come and go, but the United States is still careening towards bankruptcy. By 2020, the U.S. will be spending $1 trillion a year just to pay the interest on the national debt. Sometime between now and then, the catastrophe will come. It will come with amazing swiftness. The bond markets are with you until the second they are against you. When the psychology shifts and the fiscal crisis happens, the shock will be grievous. National humiliation, diminished power in the world, drastic cuts and spreading pain. Nothing in this past election has averted this disaster. The Republicans talk about cutting deficits, but a party that campaigns to restore the $400 million in Medicare cuts included in the health care law is not serious about averting fiscal meltdown. Some Democrats, meanwhile, don't even bother to pretend. Look at at the way many Democrats completely rejected the draft proposal unveiled by the chairman of the Fiscal Commission. Nancy Pelosi, the public sector unions, and many liberal commentators are not only unwilling to compromise to prevent a catastrophe, they are unwilling to even consider a compromise. They seem to regard anybody who would negotiate as fundamentally immoral and unserious. The report from the chairman lists some of the best ways to raise revenue and cut spending, but it comes with no enactment strategy. In this climate, asking politicians to end the mortgage deduction and tax employer health care plans and raise capital gains taxes and cut benefits for affluent seniors is like asking them to jump on a buzzing sack full of live grenades. They won't do it. So we continue on the headlong path a national disaster and along the way our dysfunctional political system will leave all sorts of other problems unaddressed immigration energy policy, and so on I'm going to pause now before I read the rest of it (coughs) what kind of a picture is he painting now he's a moderately conservative republican opinion columnist what is he basically saying without any ambiguity Well, it is like you're mumbling that if we don't do anything, America's going to go bad very soon. Well, he's saying things will go bad very soon and that they're not doing anything. What? Say more about what he's saying.
4: It's the debt that's going to catch up to us. Right now, the only reason we can continue deficit spending <laughs> is because people believe we'll pay all that money back eventually, because we always have. But as soon as people stop believing that... No one will ever give us the money that we
0: need to... Actually, people are not necessarily believing it. They're just having a hard time disbelieving it. Yeah. Go ahead.
2: He's saying that Americans as a society aren't willing to do what we have to do in order to save ourselves because it will inconvenience us in the short term.
0: Yeah, but what? that's exactly right. He is saying that. But what is he saying is going to happen?
2: We're going to collapse.
0: What kind of collapse? Financial. What's that?
2: Financial.
0: How bad? Assuming depression. He's talking worse. He's talking total national collapse. He's not pulling any punches. Did everyone read? Did everyone hear what he said? Mm -hmm. He's talking about a total national collapse. Talk about a messenger bringing the bad news. But then he's saying not only is there going to be a total national collapse, Because basically, what will happen is that the people who we've lent money to—that we've that have have lent money to us—will eventually realize they're never going to get that money back, (coughs) and then they'll call it quits. They'll dump the dollar. That means a complete collapse of the currency. And once our currency starts to collapse, Europe will go with it. That means the Europe, the euro, is already in serious trouble. The bankruptcy problem that they had in Greece is now threatening Ireland. And Portugal, and many commentators in Europe economic commentators are saying there's no way to avoid that they're next it's not like we can possibly sort of squeak out, but those are those are problems that are serious and they're going to be confronting and so if the US economy starts going there'll be a cascade the Western Europe's economy chooom, will go okay now what he's talking about is complete collapse of the dollar <coughs> People just won't want them anymore. The only way that it's going to be possible to pay back the debt is through an increased version of something that happened just a little while ago where the, the Fed starts to issue more money. They do that by buying back their debt. They do that by buying back their debt. Now, how do they buy back their debt? They say, I've got so many trillions of loans out there that, you know, bonds out there, you know, like you invest in treasury bonds? Well, you buy that back. How do you buy that back? Print you need cash money. to do that, right? Was that? You print more money. That's exactly right. You need cash to buy it back, but you don't have cash. We're bankrupt. So you don't have the cash. So how can you buy back the debt? You print it up, and you get the printing presses going, and you just, you give it to them. Well, the trouble is, you've devalued the dollar in the process. And so... Countries don't want that because they have assets in dollars and if suddenly you start printing a lot of dollars, the printing press is going, well, they don't actually print paper money, but they they manufacture it in various ways. I mean, there's all types of versions of money. Check A personal check that you write is, a, is money of a sort. So they, they create more money, they buy back the debt, and then it's gone. <coughs> the debt will shrink, but the value of the dollar is less. That will mean... That the money that you have is worth less. Now, if the money you have is worth less, that means you can buy less with it. That's the same as if somebody took some cash from you. That's the same as a tax. So that's a way to get to taxation without having to tax people. I need money from you. If I print dollars, I get. I, I, if I print dollars, then I am getting the money from you because the money that you have is worth less. But I manage to, I get it from you, the back door, through the back door rather than directly. Rather than taxing you for it, I simply print the cash. But the result is the same. He's talking about then a complete collapse of the currency and a complete collapse of the economy in that sense. And we don't manufacture much anymore. So what we're sending, what we're selling is, is basically goods and services. People won't want to trade in dollars anymore. So they won't want our current—they won't want our currency to do that. And so the in—the in trade in services, rather. We're a more service-oriented country now, not a goods-oriented country. Uh, the trades in services will go down as well. So that's what he's talking about. <clears throat> now let's read the second half of it. You've heard the first half, right? Now the second half. Yet I'm optimistic right now. <coughs> I'm optimistic because while our political system is a mess, the economic and social values of the country remain sound. My optimism is also based on the conviction that serious, vibrant societies don't sit by and do nothing as their governments drive off a cliff. Over the past few years, we have have seen millions of people mobilize, some behind President Obama and others around the Tea Parties. The country is restive and looking for alternatives, and before the next round of voting begins, I suspect we will have another mass movement, a movement of people who don't feel represented by either of the partisan orthodoxies, a movement of people who want to fundamentally change the norms, institutions, and rigidities that cause our gridlock and threaten our country. You can't organize a movement like this around pain, around tax increases and spending cuts, but you can organize one around a broad revitalization agenda and above all, love of country. It will take a revived patriotism to motivate Americans to do what needs to be done. It will take a revived patriotism to lift people out of their partisan cliques. How can you love your country if you hate the other half of it? It will take a revived patriotism to get people to look beyond their short-term financial interests to see the long-term national threat. Do you really love your tax deduction more than America's great future greatness? Are you really unwilling to sacrifice your Social Security cost-of-living adjustment at a time when soldiers and Marines are sacrificing their lives for their country in Afghanistan? Yet the Civil Rights Movement, this movement, will, last, will, will ask... Oh, like the Civil Rights Movement, this movement will ask Americans to live up to their best selves, but it will do other things besides... It will have to restore the social social norms that prevailed through much of American history, when narcissism and hyper partisanship was mitigated by loyalties larger than tribe and self, when competition between the parties was limited and constructive, not total and fratricidal. It <coughs> goes on a little bit more about what they'll do. But what has he done now? How has he shifted gears? He's
4: proposed a solution.
0: What's his solution?
4: For us to forget about the partisan bickering and focus on getting back to the kind of mentality that made America great.
0: All right. Go ahead, Lakshan.
4: I think it's from uh, uh, emphasizing on private right to the collective way, like sacrifice, uh, self-interest to the
2: national
0: interest. He's talking about sacrifice, getting back to uh, the basics, things like that. What about what he's saying. How reasonable is this? It
1: makes a lot of sense, but I don't think people are going to go for it as easily as he makes it sound. It makes a lot of sense, but I don't think people will go for it as easily as he makes it sound. Why not? Um, because of the way our society is today, I don't think you're going to get as many people who are willing to sacrifice what they have um, for the good of the country that mentality isn't as strong in people
0: today as it used to be? You know, that's a good point. In a very real sense, David Brooks has forgotten one of the most crucial aspects of voting research that we know. And that is that there are two types of voters. There are voters that respond to what we call easy issues, gut issues, ones that hit in the stomach. Things like prayer in schools, uh, outlawing abortion, things like that. And then there are voters that respond to what we call hard issues. Hard issues are issues that require you to think, that require you to understand the complexities of the problem. Guess how many voters there are that are easy issue voters as compared to hard issue voters? Yeah, there's a lot more easy issue voters than hard issue voters. People aren't, you know, Albert Einsteins out there. They respond unthinkingly without critical analysis of these problems. Logic doesn't go far from the heart. So what David Brooks is asking or suggesting is going to be necessary to happen is that the entire country is going to turn into hard issue voters. They're going to figure out all of these complicated problems and say, we need to sacrifice for the better good because of X, Y, and Z.
4: I think, like, he's assuming a lot about the morality of people, especially considering, like, our entire society is based on a capitalistic point, like, train of thought, like, profit maximization. Whereas, so, when he asks, like, isn't it obvious that you should sacrifice some of your own money for the well-being of your country? And yet, I would say that a lot of people, I would guess, at least, that a lot of people in America would say, no, it's not worth it, like, just flat
0: out. Yeah, uh, there is an issue too of how many people would openly say I'm not going to sacrifice for X, Y, and Z. Actually, they, would, they might phrase it differently.
4: They, they, might, they might phrase it and say it's more American to do this because yeah. it's the capitalist way to go. But Yeah.
0: They might phrase it instead of saying I'm not going to sacrifice for my country. They'll say I'm not going to give up my stuff for that things. person over there
4: yeah. who's
0: just a bum, who should be working at X, Y, and They'll Z. They'll word
4: it differently, but in the end, it turns out your priorities end up being your own well-being over the well-being of your country as a
5: whole.
0: Yeah. Okay, go ahead.
5: I don't think that's his angle at all, actually. I don't think his angle is that people are going to become more intelligent. I don't believe that's going to happen. I don't think they're going to start thinking about the issues and become a hard-issue voter or whatever. But I think that this hard issue, which is what it is right now of the debt, is going to become a soft issue because people may wait too long and there may be a delay and the American economy may take serious hits, But I think once the economy starts to crumble, and hopefully the public will figure out before it's too late, that we are on the verge of collapse, and you have to do something, and ultimately this choice and the thinking about it will be removed.
0: Well, that's a question. And the question is, will the issue translate to be an easy issue before we hit rock bottom? History would suggest that you're wrong about that, that we will hit rock bottom before it translates to an easy issue. A good example is World War II. World War II was the thing that got the United States out of the Depression. It was not Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal. The New Deal, at best, only staved off a revolution. Roosevelt was absolutely convinced the country was going to go either fascist or communist if he didn't try to keep up with making some changes. But in the 19... in the 1936 uh, election, he actually lost his shirt, just like we like. Just like the Democrats lost a lot of support. Well, in the 1936 election, the Democrats lost a ton of support. Um, actually, it happened to see that there was the 32 election, and then, then there was a presidential election in 36. But it was act, actually I take that back. It was the 38 election that it really happened that they lost they lost a ton of support. Uh, on an, as an off-year election. But what happened was, what started in 1936 ended up really affecting them in 1938, which was that Roosevelt decided to raise taxes and to cut back benefits. He decided to try to balance the budget, that type of thing. The same type of pressure that you're seeing being praised on Obama now. And he, Roosevelt tried to do it, and he paid handsomely for it. What happened was that the depression was simply not being solved. And that the New Deal was basically just putting out social programs that would basically buy off groups that otherwise would go radical. What happened was when World War II started, the economy was able to be geared up to an enormous level that it was not able to before. government spent, and this huge amount of government spending, to defend ourselves in World War II, revved up the economy to enormous proportions, and basically wiped out the Depression. So, it was World War II that happened. We had to hit rock bottom. We had now, Roosevelt knew we were going to get into World War II, well beforehand. It wasn't something that just sort of s- struck suddenly, and Pearl Harbor was, oh my gosh, what, you, you're kidding, people don't like us, they're attacking. When Roosevelt met with Churchill, in the North Atlantic on a destroyer, some months before Pearl Harbor. They, Roosevelt knew perfectly well that there would be an incident in the Pacific somewhere. He may not have known about Pearl Harbor or the actual day or whatever, although historians do debate that to this day, how much he actually knew. Two destroyers s- snuck out of Pearl Harbor a couple days before the attack in sort of a strange situation, but nonetheless, those two destroyers were except, were the most modern of the fleet, and they were exceptionally useful in engaging the Japanese fleet after Pearl Harbor uh, while the U.S. Navy was being revved up. But what happened was, was while they were building it, the, what Roosevelt made a deal with Churchill was that he said, I cannot have this country enter the world of the war the way Woodrow Wilson had the country enter World War I with a divided nation. I'll be fighting the battle at home just like we're, just, just as much as Woodrow Wilson was fighting. I've got to fight the battle abroad. I've got to fight the Nazis in the Pacific. I have to fight Europe in the European arena and the Pacific arena. I have to do that totally, and I can't be fighting domestic battles at the same time. So we're going to have to wait for the incident to occur. And Churchill basically said, wait for the incident. They're bombing the heck out of us. What do you mean? Wait. So he said, What we'll do is we'll transform the U.S. economy so that when the incident does happen, we'll be already transformed into a wartime economy. So they were transforming our car, our automobile factories, into tank factories. Things that were manufactured for, you know, spoons, silverware, and things like that were manufacturing bullets instead. And those supplies were being shipped over to Britain. And Roosevelt said boldly on radio, We will not fight the European war for them, but we will give them the supplies they need to defend themselves. What he was doing is transferring our resources, our economic resources, into wartime resources, knowing that he simply couldn't enter the war itself until the opposition to, the isolationist opposition to entering the war was smashed. (coughs) And then Pearl Harbor happened. And then... A man who was Mr. Theater himself, with the absolute flare of indignity and shock, got onto the radio and said, This is a day of infamy. We have been attacked. He knew damn well we were going to be attacked someplace and he was betting on it. But at that time the entire country was translate was the economy had been transformed into a wartime economy. Everybody was in favor of defending ourselves. The next day, they declared war not only on Japan but on Germany. It was, it was one after the next. First Japan, and then right after that Germany, and the U.S. was in the war. And the economy of the United States was ready to be, you know, revved up. All the factories had already been trans- translated into, transformed into wartime factories. So, the whole idea was, Roosevelt was saying, even with the Nazis you know, rumbling through all of Europe (laughs) and the threats that were potential in the Pacific arena. Even with all of that, it was too much of a hard issue. You had to wait till it became an easy issue or the people just simply weren't going to buy it. I mean, there were a lot of people who were absolutely against. Uh, The U.S. ambassador to Britain was who, by the way, at that time? David Brooks. No, not David David. (laughs) Brooks. Joseph Kennedy. The father of uh, the Kennedy clan, and he hated Britain. He didn't like Britain, <laughs> and he was uh, the British didn't so much like the fact that he was the ambassador. Anyway, he was arguing forcefully. Don't defend these people. The point is that um, you know, in terms of entering the world, there was a lot of isolationists out there. So the point is, easy issues are the way people respond. They don't think, and so Chris Carmody in this book was attacked because there were a lot of people out there who saw it as an easy issue. He said something, he wrote something. It resulted in somebody else committing suicide. Chris didn't do anything except tell the truth. And that caused a response. And then Chris learned from it that that wasn't a bad thing. So what, I mean, that wasn't a good thing. So what we have here is inhibitions on the level of the news reporting to hold back. The education of the news to not tell the truth. There's lots of stories that you have out there that the news is not reporting. And they report it, they don't report it for two reasons. One is, they are afraid of the response. Why did David Brooks go into this optimistic scenario after making the most dire picture anyone could possibly make, firsthand? Why did he say, the world is coming to an end, and then say, but I am optimistic, and then go into this thing? The reality is, He basically said a country will simply turn itself around, pull itself up by its bootstraps, become patriotic, a new sense of patriotism. I mean, like, why would that happen? He doesn't want to be attacked. What's that? He doesn't want to be attacked. That's a good point. That raises the question of why he's writing that way. Can you, at this point, actually be an opinion columnist and simply say the truth and leave it at that? There's a lot of financial interests in the New York Times. There's a lot of financial interests in the nation that may not want to hear something that's completely negative. Also, the public may not want to hear something that's completely negative. You get the idea? He painted the most dire picture one can possibly imagine and then turned completely 180 degrees and said, but we'll fix it. I'm optimistic. It doesn't make sense at all. That's the problem we have with our society. David Brooks didn't want to turn out to be a Chris Carmody, as we see in this book. Now, we have other issues going on with the issue of extraterrestrial life. Bringing that out into the book, as it's brought brought into the book. It's not just the extraterrestrial life that they're observing with their machinery. They have quantum-based machinery that is capable of Observing the daily life of extraterrestrial life in this book. And that's what they do at the Blind Lake Facility. And the Blind Lake Facility is sort of modeled after Area 51 out in the southwest. So they have a facility, something secret's going on. Um, They are monitoring, actually watching the activities in a distant star system of an extraterrestrial civilization that seemed relatively primitive. What actually happens by the end of the book that was so surprising, that caused the unbelievably harsh clampdown on the part of the government? These creatures, these funny-looking creatures that are in the book, were they the reason for the clampdown? No. No. What was the reason for the plant-down? The starfish structures that started growing. turned out there was another extraterrestrial species. It turned out that our watching the first extraterrestrial species, and yet the first extraterrestrial species didn't have a high enough level of technology to be able to watch us back. They were able to have one person in their group actually turn around and sort of, perceived that there was something going on. But the problem was that there was yet another extraterrestrial species that was watching us watching the first extraterrestrial species. And when we started to make this connection, that new extraterrestrial species said, "Okay, you've changed. You have left your borders. You have left your realm. You are now out here. You are now interacting with others. You are watching them, and unbeknownst to you, they are beginning to be able to perceive that you're watching. Now you've joined the community of worlds. You're now interacting with people. And so what happened is this new extraterrestrial species started to show up in these star-type formations that were appearing around the planet on the ground. And the U.S. and other governments reacted... You know, with a total clampdown, a, a total shock, total dismay. They had essentially run into those situations of thinking about having lost control. And this is very similar to the example I made before with you with the country of Myanmar, Burma, where the, the last person to win a legitimate presidential election, Suki, was uh, imprisoned under house arrest for the longest period of time. Released. Uh, she was just released. She was just now released. And a lot of diplomats aren't very hopeful. They're thinking that she's going to start talking, you know, elections and democracy and stuff like that, and they'll throw her back in house arrest again. But you never know what will happen. And um, the situation is that the, the Burmese, the Myanmar junta, military junta, didn't want to have any possible threat to them by having outside people come in. And so when they had a cyclone hit, remember I gave you that example before the cyclone hit, the U.S. and others sent ships to the border and said, we'd like to unload this stuff. They said, you can't come here, you can't come in. It doesn't matter if we all die. You're not bringing U.S. soldiers or anybody else carrying those goods and supplies, those rescue supplies, onto this place because we didn't want that interaction. Well, that type of thing is um, basically the type of thing that the... The United States reacted, the way the United States reacted in this book. Uh, clampdown, clampdown, shock. Fear of this new ingredient, essentially, coming into our midst, threatening the, the, our ability to hold on to power. Whenever a new ingredient like that, a new intelligence comes in, they always the big concern is, can you control the agenda anymore? So anyway, so we have that. Um, let's move on to another... Another passage. And let's pick a passage that you have. <coughs> Hopefully, one further on into the book. But well, go ahead.
4: Um, Sorry, I, I had an e book. I'm assuming it's the same page. It was like bottom of page 86.
0: Bottom of page 86.
4: Um, here we go. Um, where now, you're going to
0: have to correct? speak loudly and clearly
4: whereas he often was with blind legs like, groping into the unknown the idea was preposterous the aboriginals of UMA 47 e could hardly know they were being spied on and even if they did images processed the lake had traveled however mysteriously at the conventional speed of light it would need both an impossible perceptivity and a ridiculously
0: you're, you're, you're running words into each other and a ridiculously
4: patient desire slow down revenge,
0: slow down
4: for them to react go back to way.
0: it would be both it would need both
4: it would need both an impossible perceptivity and a ridiculously patient desire for revenge for them to react in any hostile way. Still, he had been forced to admit dangerous degenography was not an absolute impossibility, at least in the abstract. So, um, that's basically as far as I need for this, actually.
0: Um, I'll go ahead, finish the paragraph.
4: Well, it's not as. Uh, okay. okay, fine. So, a series of contingency plans had been written into the already immense web of security plans surrounding the lake, even though, in Ray's opinion, it was the biggest crock of astronomical shit since Girolamo Bracostoro's theory that syphilis was caused by the conjunction of Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars.
0: Okay, now, what's this all about? Well,
4: basically, I thought it corresponded very well to the idea that people are very slow to accept new ideas being brought into their myths, like the idea that these extraterrestrial species could look back at them. And it's really interesting because people, like, they, um they tend to forget very often that the ideas they take for granted were once exactly in the same position as the ideas that they just scoff at at this point, rather than even take seriously.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: So in this case, like, he's perfectly accepting of the idea that he's spying on these extraterrestrial creatures at the speed of light that he doesn't even understand fully, but he's scoffing at the idea that they could possibly be looking back at him and it was just an you know, astronomical crock.
0: All like, right. Alright, that's good. The, uh, the whole issue that it takes a while for people to <coughs> accept that, you know, real change could be happening in what they're doing.
4: And it tends to affect the political skill a lot, too, especially as far as technology affects our politics.
0: Okay, that's good. That's a good point. Let's get a couple more passages also, uh, especially ones that might be further on into the book. Tyler, mm-hmm. go ahead. What page? Um, it's page
3: 220.
0: 220
3: right before it's the very end of chapter 18
0: okay so we're talking about the end of chapter 18 where do you want to start
3: Um, it's a conversation between Chris and Marguerite alright and um, I'm just gonna can I start in like the middle of a paragraph
0: yeah where what um, line
3: at the top of the page Marguerite says why would they do that to us Chris There's nothing dangerous here.
0: Okay, that's fine. Why don't you start there?
3: Why would they do that to us, Chris? There's nothing dangerous here. Nothing's changed since the day before the lockdown. What are they afraid of? He smiled humorously. The joke. What joke? There's an old comedy routine. I forget where I saw it. It's World War II, and the Brits come up with the ultimate weapon. A joke so funny, you die laughing if you hear it. The joke is translated word by word into phonetic German. Guys on the front lines are yelling it through bullhorns, and the Nazi troops drop dead in the trenches. Okay, so, it's the original information virus, an idea or an image capable of driving someone mad. Maybe that's what the world is afraid of. And I...
0: Read a little bit more.
3: That's a dumb idea, and it was retired during the congressional hearings a decade ago. But suppose it happened at Crossbank, or something happened there that looked like it. CrossBank isn't looking at the same planet. Even if they found something potentially dangerous, how would it affect us? It wouldn't unless the problem arose with the OBECs. That's all we really have in common with CrossBank, the hardware.
0: Okay, okay. Okay, go ahead. What's all this about?
3: Well, um, one thing that I particularly notice is it's talking about an information virus. Which yes, is What yes. we talked about with Snow Crash. That's... <coughs> um, Mainly what I thought was interesting, but it's also um, kind of goes with what Rowan was saying about us being afraid of new ideas, of not wanting to accept things, is we think that there is there's something inherently wrong with new ideas, that they can cause these problems that will end the world, basically.
0: That's good. Who else has something to say about this passage? These are good points. What's that?
4: That sketch is from Monty,
3: Python. Monty Python sketch.
0: It's a Monty Python. No, that's not really constructive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, why you, why don't think. you say something about the Monty Python sketch? Can you?
4: I think the Monty Python sketch really focuses on that—the fact that uh, that I don't even know how to connect the Monty Python. All right, sketch all right, all right. Fine. fine. Go ahead.
0: Go ahead. Go ahead. It's what about, about this passage then? Um, well, what about the idea of the virus? What about this informational virus? <coughs> Turned out to be then, by the end of the book, they were the, the, the government was concerned much about something much more than an informational virus. They were concerned about actual ET facilities that were popping up on the ground. But Chris didn't know that at the time, so he hypothesized about the issue of the informational virus. So what's that all about?
1: I think it's interesting that it, they refer to it as a joke. Um, somebody was telling me the other day about how a lot of times jokes are funny because you just, like, it's too hard to understand. Like when you get over your head sometimes, you, like the tendency is just to laugh. You just have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Um, so I think it's interesting that they're talking about an informational virus um, in a sense that it's a joke.
0: Yeah, especially when the implications of the of what could happen with the virus are so large. What else? What about this thing? <coughs> well basically what I really want to emphasize here is they have been quarantined. There's a complete informational blockade. There's also no people able to get into the facility, no people able to leave the facility people that try to leave the facility are shot. So it's a complete quarantine, physical quarantine, a risk of life. And so, when Chris is looking at this, he's saying, well, this could be justified or could be understood from the perspective of just an informational virus. Information may come out. And what happens if information does come out that's sufficiently... Disruptive. If something's been discovered at this facility, at Blind Lake, that's sufficiently disruptive, Chris is saying the informational virus could do what? Drive
2: someone mad. (coughs) Capable of driving someone mad.
0: Well, no, not necessarily uh, in the snow crash sense, but driving the society mad.
2: Yeah, like. Causing chaos.
0: Causing society. chaos, that's exactly right. It could have a response. Chris Carmody is thinking about the informational virus because of the impact of his last book. The information coming out with the book could cause a response. And that informational virus could make the society sick. Meaning it could be information that's leaked out, that's gotten out, and once the society gets sick, there could be a response to it. So he's sensitive to it because of the uh, of the impact that it had on his last experience when he had information come out. And so he sees the government as, an, as attempting to shut down on a piece of information that could be more disruptive than his last book. Something that could be destabilizing to the society. Little does he know that these actual big E.T. facilities are popping up all over the planet. He thinks, however, that the response would occur simply on the basis of the fact that we may, that they may know something at the facility that other people outside of the facility don't know that could cause an informational snow crash. to the exact same way that... Neil Stephenson was talking about it in his book. That information is the greatest threat to a society. That was the threat that the junta felt at, uh, in Myanmar when the cyclone hit, that the rescued troops that would be coming in with supplies from the outside would bring in not just supplies, but they'd bring in information, and that information would be the greatest threat. It's the informational threat to the society. Okay, who else has another passage? It's a great passage. Who else has another passage? Go ahead, Josh. Uh, On page
5: 271.
0: 271. Let's all go to that first. And why don't you tell us a little bit about the context of your passage.
5: Uh, This is in the middle of Ray's rant when he goes on stage after Marguerite talks about the effect of how humans humans see everything through a narrative. That's just the lens we view. And so Ray goes on this rant, and he's talking about the comparison between an ape and a man is... Most, their most of life when they're dreaming. Uh, and so, I want to start at the very bottom paragraph on page 271, where he's talking about the OBECs.
0: Okay, and what what was the first line you wanted to start with?
5: Uh, we did it so effectively.
0: Okay, page 271, we did it so effectively, sort of towards the end, few, end of three or four pages in from the end of chapter 22. Go ahead.
5: We did it so effectively, I would suggest, that we have forgotten the fundamental truth that we are dreaming. We confuse the dream with reason, but the ape reasons too. What the ape will not do is dream ideologies, dream terrorism, dream vengeful gods, dream slavery, dream gas chambers, dream lethal remedies for dreamlike problems. Dreams are commonly nightmares. Uh, And that's the only part I wanted to read, because that emphasized something that is repeated throughout the book, and that's how people are afraid of new ideas, Uh, and Ray in particular is really... He was so resistant to everything that the OBEC saw, and then now that this quarantine happens and he once again doesn't know what's going on, he resists any new idea, and he even wants to shut off the eye and all these things. And so his response is to compare it to a dream, and then to like kind of re- de- reduce it to the absurd. And then he also, like to back up his point that this is a dream or it's not reasonable or we don't fully understand it, he points to all the negative things that not fully understanding has brought about in human history, such as the Holocaust and vengeful mm-hmm. gods and slavery.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Tyler, you are going to say something about this.
3: It's also kind of interesting because it's kind of what he wants to do, those things that he's talking about. Because with the examples he gives, it's basically when people are afraid of something new, they react with violence to destroy it because they're so afraid. And that's what he wants to do, is he wants to destroy the OBECs. But he's using these examples to make a point that's kind of opposite of what he should be trying to say. He's actually kind of proving the other way. hmm It seems to me. You
0: know, this whole idea of him threatening to shut down the, the device, the device for being able to watch the other extraterrestrial species in the other star system. What does that parallel in a book that we just finished reading? Meaning he doesn't really know why the clampdown is there. He doesn't really have any information for why um, there is no access. But he's guessing at this point. And so what situation do we have that's similar uh, that we read about recently.
5: The Quarantine in Doomsday book?
0: That's right. The, the Quarantine in uh, in Doomsday book. And that's Connie Willis's book, the Doomsday book. And the whole idea was that the, uh, the response was to shut down the time machine, shut down the means of travel, assuming that that was the problem that was causing it in the first place. In both cases, we had situations where no one had any idea what was causing the problem yet they attack the technology. They attack what they didn't understand the most. People tend to attack that which they do not understand. Again, we're talking about the easy response as compared to the hard response. The easy issue rather than the hard issue. That which is easy to attack is what gets attacked. And technology, of course, is one of those things. So, we have uh, a few minutes left. Who else has another passage that that we can look, especially near the end of the book? Who else has another passage? you have one? Yeah. Go ahead. How about you read it? Tell us where it is first. Okay. Um, it's on page... 373?
6: Which one? 373.
0: 373. And that's actually towards the beginning of chapter 35, a few pages in, a couple pages in. Where do you want to start? And tell us the context that's going on here. Okay. The
6: context is the... Uh, the starfish structure has like started growing All like, right. in the OBEC core, and um, <laughs> Tess is talking with Mirror Girl, who is like the consciousness, basically, of the OBEC okay. system. And thinking, I'm, I'm starting at the, uh, like, near the bottom this paragraph. Starting with
0: Which, not nearly? Yeah.
6: Um, okay. Not nearly. Mirror okay, Girl. this is on
0: page two, uh, 373. Yeah. Go ahead.
6: Not nearly, Mirror Girl said, not by a long shot. Thinking creatures make machines, Mirror Girl said, and their machines grow more complex. No,
0: let me just interrupt. And Mirror Girl,
6: why don't you remind people what Mirror Girl is? She's basically the, like, consciousness of all the OBEZ or similar machines that have been created throughout the universe
0: over time, And the connection that they have. And she looks like... And she looks like Tess. She looks like Tess, and Tess sees her where... In mirrors. In mirrors and so on like that. All right, that's why she called mirror girls. So it's a, what she sees is sort of in herself, but it, rather than seeing a passive reflection that looks like just her, the, she speaks. <laughs> the mirror reflection speaks. Okay, go ahead. And their machines grow more complex, and eventually
6: they build machines that think and do more than think, machines that invest their complexity into the structure of potential quantum states. Cultures of thinking organisms generate these nodes of profoundly dense complexity in the same way massive stars collapse into singularities. Tess asked if that was what was if that was what was happening now here in the dim corridors of Eyeball Alley. Yes. What happens next? It surpasses understanding. And the idea that there is really that last phrase that I wanted to get into here. The idea that you that people interact with things that They have no idea what will possibly happen. I feel like that's an an interesting aspect of the book, that people people will often interact with. I was thinking like we could connect it to prescription drugs. People put substances into their bodies that they don't fully understand how they're going to interact and what exactly will happen. But they continue to do it anyway because of some perceived benefit. And there, there are clear benefits to the OVC systems that Even because of this, they still just have no idea what will go wrong.
0: Actually, I I I got something else out of that pattern. I think what you said was was interesting and, and fascinating, actually. But there's something else in this pattern as in this passage as well that we might mention in the 30 pages in the 30 seconds or minute that's left. This passage is important. I'm glad you got it because. It shows a little bit about the evolution of intelligence. Normally, when we think about the evolution of intelligence, we think about our physical cells just getting a little bit bigger brains, becoming a little bit smarter, being able to conceptually think things differently. But this universe has been around a long time. And so, in reality, if you add a million years to us, we won't be doing just what we're doing today. I mean, it's just not going to be us having a seminar. If you think about it a hundred years or a thousand years, but then go into a million years, you're thinking about the possibility of intelligence advancing very considerably. And that the interaction between artificial intelligence and real intelligence will become more profound. For example, kids today have these devices You have these devices on your all the time. You're texting other people all the time. You're interacting with the intelligence. Now, these text things, these cell phone text things, uh, Twitters, all the other stuff you use, they simply didn't exist a few years ago. Now, imagine how closely you are in your ability to connect with other people through this technology. Add a million years to this. You see how much the technology has developed only after just a short amount of time. Add a million years to this, the technology, the interaction between machine and human will be astounding. What if the that, I, go ahead.
4: But what if that levels off, you know? Like a lot of things will grow exponentially for a while and then level off. What if there's a certain point after which we Don't can... Don't
0: assume anything. Just assume that there will be amazing things that will happen. At some point in time, that as intelligence, however it's defined... Part biological, part machine, part machine enhanced, part whatever it turns out to be, will have profound abilities that to us would seem godlike, absolutely godlike. And when we, in that future state, interact with other species who are in our current state, as it is in this book, it would be a total game changer. And that we, in our future, million years in advanced state, (coughs) would know that the moment we interact with others, the society, the primitive society that we will interact will be irrevocably changed. So are we going to do that easily? We will be able to look at societies that are in our state of development and we will be able to say, a million years from now, yeah, we could knock on their door, rattle their cage, but like, is it really going to be a good thing to do? Is it really, we know that if we plop down right in front of them, their way of doing things will not be the same anymore. Do we really want to rattle their case, or we just want to let them evolve in their own way for a while? So, the real question you're going to say is, at what point do you plop down in front of them and say, okay, we're here, because the instant that you show yourself a million years from now in a species that's like us, at our level of development, that species irrevocably changed. That's a lot of burden to take, to say, I'm going to do this to you now, and your life will not be the same ever again after I do this. At what point will you make that decision to do that? You will make that decision at some point. At what point will you make that decision? I'm going to mess with this lesser developed species at this point. Answer that question and we can all go. Well, just think about it.
1: When there's no other option?
0: When there's no other option, why? Why is there no other option?
1: Because you've gotten all the information you can without interacting with them?
0: No, you can, if you're that far advanced, you can get all sorts of information. Something has to happen that the, lower, the, the lesser developed species has to be doing something that forces the hand.
2: So you need to feel like controlling them is necessary for your own
0: survival? Not necessarily, although we're going to interact with that concept in the next book. Go ahead.
2: If that society is about to collapse,
0: and you want to save them. Possibly, if that society is about to collapse, we're actually going to interact with that in the next book. But what is this society doing now that forces the hand of this advanced group? They're starting to look back at the
6: observers. Starting to they're watch? starting to look back at the things that are observing them. They're starting to go
0: out into the universe. They're starting to go out. Go ahead.
2: Oh, I was kind of going to say they're starting to go out, but also they're messing around with things that they don't completely understand.
0: Well, yeah, but that's part of... The messing around with things they don't completely understand is part of the going out. The humans are now interacting with other extraterrestrials. They have left home. They have gone out there. And as soon as you leave and go out at that point you become a galactic civilization. You're no longer homebound. And at that point, if you go out there, you will meet us. Since you are now going out there, we might as well introduce ourselves. And at that point, there's no reason to stop the introduction. So from a political point of view, that's the moment when the interaction really occurs.